We're really thrilled today to have Zach Carter joining us uh, to, I think, talk about a pretty wide range of issues. But both Me Too and I were talking about the price of peace. Uh, Zach's both history of the life of John Maynard Keynes and also I think it's fair to say an intellectual history of Keynes and Keynesianism uh, after uh, his death. And um, we were familiar, I think, with maybe the second half of that story, or at least familiar in kind of a passing way, having lived and worked through uh, the financial crisis and the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis, where it seemed like Keynes uh, was coming up right and left in connection with all kinds of ideas. As familiar as I, as I was or thought I was, there was so much I learned from the book, uh, and we were really uh, super excited to get Zach to, to come and join us um, to talk about uh, some of the connections between the book and between Keynes and the world of sovereign debt. So, so Zach, thanks so much for, for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So maybe we can start with just some background on the project, if you don't mind. Can you tell us a bit about how you got interested in writing the book? And in particular, you know, it isn't as if this is the untouched territory. So what aspects of the history were you particularly interested in? And did you think uh, people had been maybe overlooking? Well, I became interested in Keynesianism as a banking reporter for a trade publication in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, at the time, it was called SNL Financial. Now it is part of uh, S&P Global. But it was my first job out of college. I graduated from the University of Virginia, also in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, I think one of you can attest um, and I, I started working at, uh, at, at this place 2006, 2005. Uh, and I thought being a banking reporter was going to be pretty dull. I wanted to, I wanted to cover politics. I, money just didn't seem that interesting to me at 22 or 23. And, uh, then the financial crisis happened. And of course I was completely wrong. Money is fascinating. <laughs> And, and financial crises are terrifying, uh, but they're also very exciting and very interesting uh, if it's not your money being destroyed. And uh, I noticed that the way people in financial markets talked about markets and how they worked or how they thought they worked changed just immediately uh, after Lehman Brothers fell. Really, it, it changed after Bear Stearns fell uh, six months earlier, but um, but you could tell before the crash, people would talk about markets being efficient and speculation being a, a useful input into a system that would help with price discovery and all of these ideas about how rational markets were going to help lead the world to uh, a more efficient and more prosperous future. And it wasn't so much that people in the in the markets would would just make this case to you every day. It was just obviously embedded in all of their assumptions when, about how the world worked when they would talk to you. And then suddenly the crash comes and everyone's talking about the need for uh, for bank bailouts and and then eventually for a, a really serious fiscal, they would call it fiscal stimulus package, uh, to keep the economy from just totally collapsing. And I I don't think these people were being like venal or dishonest or anything. I think they actually changed their minds over the course of the crash. I think they they learned from something uh, 
something really disastrous, uh, which is what you want to see. But it also occurred to me that these people couldn't be particularly well-versed in Keynesian thought if they were just adopting it on the fly in a crisis. So I had the the thought that if I learned a lot of the original Keynes stuff, that I'd have a huge jump on all the other reporters in the, in this space because I would understand how the world worked while they were trying to figure it out, you know, day by day with report by report being released. Uh, and that intuition was completely wrong. I did not help me at all as a reporter, <laughs> but I found that I really loved reading Keynes. And in fact, there was this huge world of political theory and uh, international relations material and uh, just geopolitical intrigue that Keynes was a part of that all of his economic theories, and I use that that plural word uh, with, with intent there, that all of his theories were, were designed to deal with. The, the economics in a lot of ways were just reverse engineering his hope to, to create a, a more peaceful and, and prosperous world. And all of that, that material seemed more and more important as the crash ground on and then as the Great Recession ground on. It became clear that the damage and the fallout from this event were going to be not just not just a bad recession, but something that was going to define a generation. And and by the time the, the 2016 presidential campaign started, I felt like I had I had learned enough from Keynes that it was it was time to write a book and that there, there would be people other than than myself who would be interested in this story. Um, piecing together the, you know, the, the, the it's a big geopolitical story, Keynes's life. Uh, it's not just the story of an economic theory. And uh, and I didn't think people understood that. I didn't think people knew that because I was aware of who Keynes was before I started the research, of course, but I didn't know that until I started reading the primary source material. The, the story you have told is quite incredible. And I, I was really surprised at how rich of a story it is, not just in terms of the economic theory. I suspect that if it was just about the economic theory, I would have stopped reading it, you know, page three. But the story of how the formative experiences of Keynes that ranged from his involvement in the Bloomsbury Group to his work in the India office, to the work that he did in the British Treasury, his views about colonialism. I mean, it just made, made it seem like all those things connected to the, the theories that he then becomes famous for and lives on long after he has passed. And um, you wove that together uh, beautifully. But I, I, I mean, our podcast is not just about praising your book. Uh, you have received uh, more than <laughs> adequate amount of praise. And we're just a little obscure podcast about sovereign debt. But um, if we could begin with talking a little bit about the mod one of the modern incarnations of Keynes that comes after the financial crisis in the U.S. in 2008 and thereabouts, which is the European sovereign debt crisis where 
there was a lot of discussion of Keynes's views regarding the appropriateness of severe austerity that was imposed on a number of countries in Europe, uh, often perceived to be imposed by countries like Germany, who are seen as quite fiscally austere. And so on the other side, often people invoke the German history and Keynes uh, and arguments about German war debt to say, look, this, this is uh, quite at odds with what your own history would tell us. So I was wondering if we could begin a little bit by talking about Keynes's arguments regarding the German war debt. And I realize the German war debt spans multiple decades and multiple wars in the context of Keynes. But if you wouldn't mind answering that, um, but if you need, I'll, I'll try to narrow it further. No, sure. The Keynes becomes a, a figure of international renown in 1919 when he writes a book called The Economic Consequences of the Peace. And that book has a really dull title and sounds like an extremely technical treatise that would only be read by you know, a few dozen or a few hundred experts in a field uh, like, say, sovereign debt <laughs> economists. Um, and indeed, that is basically what his first book had been. He, he had written a, a previous book on the operation of the gold standard in India um, that had sold, I, th I think, about 900 copies. Um, which is not embarrassing for uh, for you know a technical book like that at, at the turn of the century, um, but not the sort of thing that you know changes worlds and uh, and and gets you know people from the Nobel Peace Prize interested in your work. And in fact, the economic consequences of the peace, I think, almost single handedly reshaped the conventional wisdom about the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War One and. Uh, and sold unbelievably well. I mean, it just made, it turned Keynes into a celebrity uh, the way that um, he wasn't famous the way Charlie Chaplin was famous, but he was someone who would be recognized alongside movie stars. Uh, when he was married in 1925, he, he married uh, the most popular ballerina in Britain and their wedding was covered by Vogue magazine. There were newspapers on multiple continents who believed it was the, the type of event that should be given attention. So this book makes him into a really, really big deal. And of course, Keynesian economics doesn't exist yet. So he's not presenting any ideas about, about deficit spending or recessions and the like that we teach in, or at least we receive in Econ 101 classes. He's just talking about what the debt burdens from the war are going to do to Europe and specifically Germany. And his views about what should be done with Germany stem from his views about the nature of the conflict itself. Keynes did not believe that Germany was uniquely a bad actor in the run-up to World War I. He didn't think the war was all Germany's fault. And in fact, throughout the war, he had been conflicted about Britain's own involvement in the war and about his personal involvement at the British Treasury Secretary running British war finance. Uh, he had a position of just incredible power and responsibility. I think at one point he wrote a memoir where he said that all of the money that we spent in World War I at some time or other passed through my hands. 
Uh, and he, this was happening while he was uh, in, involved in a very closely knit community of artists called the Bloomsbury Group that you alluded to earlier. And these are people like Virginia Woolf and Leonard Woolf, um, expressionist painters like Duncan Grant, um, people who believe very deeply in this internationalist community of art and ideas, which is going to bring peoples from all over the world together and, uh, and create a flowering of prosperity and beauty. Uh, and they're all just ferociously anti-war. And here's Keynes you know, coming home from the British Treasury every day, telling them about what's going on with the war. And they, they are telling him, what are you doing? You need to resign. Where's your integrity? Um, so the war end, by the time the war ends, he's become very much captivated by Woodrow Wilson's account of the war. And I think Woodrow Wilson, the most in the last 10 or 15 years, has become better known for being a, a, a vicious racist. Um, than as an idealist of international peace and harmony. But at the time, he was certainly regarded as, uh, as almost a sort of uh, religious figure in Europe, as someone who, who believed that the, the viciousness of imperialism could be tamed by you know, just and wise international cooperation. And in particular, he believed that World War I could, the only proper way to end World War I would be a peace without victory, where nobody on either side would be pillaging the other side, uh, regardless of who, who ended up winning the conflict, um, that the war would come to an end and, and the, the different combatants would have to learn to get along together rather than see each other as adversaries uh, forevermore. And so Keynes is really captivated by, by this vision. And, and one of the reasons he's captivated by this vision is because it justifies his work on the war. So he can tell his friends in Bloomsbury, look, the war was truly awful, but now that Wilson and the Americans are involved, we can actually make something out of this terrible mess and it can be a force for good. And when he sees what happens at the, the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, he's completely disillusioned. He sees uh, an excessive, in particular, he sees an excessively heavy reparations burden being uh, imposed on Germany and uh, total unwillingness from the United States government to uh, write down or reduce the war debts that the Allies have accrued over the course of the war, because Britain is suddenly very, very deeply in debt to the United States, which is an unusual and anxious position for Britain to be in. They're used to being a creditor nation, not a debtor nation. So Keynes is to some extent talking his own book, saying, you know, we need to wipe off all of the debts, not just the German debts. Um, but he's also, I think, making a very... Uh, coherent and uh, and consistent moral argument that it's the, the war is not entirely Germany's fault. And so to come to a, a peace agreement that just economically ravages Germany, which he believes the reparations duties uh, that ultimately agreed to it at, at Paris will do, um, is is not only a betrayal of of the sort of Wilsonian idea of a, of a just peace without victory, but setting the continent up for another war. And he makes an economic argument for why this will happen. He says, basically, if Germany is going to pay these massive reparations duties to, to the victors of the war, they're going to have to get the money from somewhere. It, obviously, everybody is broke at the end of the war. That's why they're all in debt. So, so there, aren't, there isn't just this enormous stock of resources wait, waiting to be capitalized upon to be converted into wealth. So Germany will have to essentially steal market share from Britain, France, and the United States in order, to, in order to create the money that it needs to pay Britain, France, and the United States. And if it does this, it will make Britain 
France and the United States poorer. Uh, and so Keynes' solution is to write up all these debts, make do not impose very heavy, heavy financial burdens on Germany. He seems, seems to think it's politically impossible to not have some sort of, of reparations duty assessed, but something much, much more um, modest than what is agreed to at, at Paris. And, uh, and ultimately, that's sort of what happens uh, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a really dysfunctional, chaotic way that doesn't avoid another war. Um, the debts that are assessed against Germany just aren't repaid. And we can talk more about why that is. Uh, but but essentially, ne in neither the British war debts nor the German reparations debts are ultimately repaid in anything like what we would consider, uh, you know, a, a, a full uh, a full account. Um, everything is over the course of a series of renegotiations written down to much less meaningful levels. Eventually, the German stuff is just totally dismissed, uh, but not before really setting into motion all of the economic disasters that lead to the Great Depression. Um, so in, in a really tragic sense, Keynes is, is right, but also overly optimistic uh, because the economic damage turns out to be even more severe than what he predicts and the political damage uh, more catastrophic than I think he could have imagined. So, Zach, I am... Um... We want to ask you more about Keynes's views about reparations uh, and the British debt to the U.S. and more about uh, the German debt, including the Dawes and Young loans. Uh, but I, I want to, I, I, I hope this is not a detour. It's just going back a little bit to the one tiny uh, aspect of the book that I wish you had uh, done done more on, even though I, I know you probably are like, I'm not writing any more pages, uh, but it's self-interested and it's because I grew up in India. I'm the child of uh, at least one ardent uh, Marxist slash uh, Keynesian, uh, although I, I, I confess I, I didn't really know those two went together. But reading your discussion of Keynes's anti-imperialist views, particularly since he comes from elite British society and worked in the India office, I, I'm and reading later in your book, uh, you know, so many of Keynes's disciples, like uh, Caldor, Joan Robinson, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, it, it spend so much time in India. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm wondering whether you think there was a significant impact of his working in the India office in this very imperialist context on how he later on views Wilsonian ideas and ideas about self-determination and then subsequently the German debt. Because my sense, and I re-listened to your chapters two and three last night in preparation for our conversation, and I was struck by the dichotomy with which many people viewed the colonies as compared to how they viewed war 
and oppression in Europe. The, the, even the colonies, it was okay to do horrible things and subjugate people, but in Europe, that, that was uncivilized. Right. Uh, so the short answer is yes, there's quite a bit from, I think, his experience in at the India house. I should not say in India because he doesn't actually go to India like many British intellectuals who worked on Indian affairs, uh, most notably John Stuart Mill, who is uh, the subject of my next biography. Um, but there isn't as much documentation of the work that he did in India. So it's harder to pull from like specific papers and see, aha, this idea led to that idea the way there is on the European side. And he also, I think, had a kind of um, very typical British attitude to, it, the India House was uh, was prestigious. It was the most prestigious of the, the sort of foreign policy-ish um, areas of British government at the time. But Keynes had always wanted to work in treasury. That was the most prestigious. So he was always, I mean, like other major intellectuals who had been at India House before him, um, you can you can see he's he doesn't have a great passion for the work and is is always eyeing you know I can't wait to do the real thing which is which is British Treasury and you know there are some pretty I think obvious um, prejudices in in play there um, about what kind of work is is prestigious and important and what kind of work isn't uh, you know his first book is on the operation of the gold standard in India and I think that sort of starts to get in into motion his ideas about how different countries can operate monetary policies. Um, but I, you know, in terms of, of like abuse and oppression and the things that we associate with the British Empire in India, um, there just isn't a ton of documentation laying out Keynes's specific views about individual disputes in India, the way there is, say, for somebody like John Stuart Mill. Um, we can say with confidence that he believed in the responsibility of the British government to deliver good governance. So he's not hes not like Rudyard Kipling. Uh, he's, he's not just a super aggressive, jingoistic right-wing guy. Um, but he does believe I think very firmly in Britain's right to rule in India and thinks that uh, while they have a responsibility to rule well, um, Indian independence is just not something he's he's particularly interested in. I, I would say, I mean, even to the point where he, he just doesn't think about it very much. Uh, he takes it for granted that India is part of the British Empire, while simultaneously, as you note, um, seeing the course of imperialism in Europe as uh, as something generally disgraceful. I think Keynes's attitude toward India is a lot like that of, let's say, a, a contemporary American exceptionalist uh, and, and their attitude about the United States. Imperialism in general is bad and wrong, but it's, you know, when it's done wisely by, you know, a shining beacon on the hill for freedom and prosperity, like the country that, you know, Americans happen to live in, then, then, it's, then it's okay. And, and it would be, in fact, irresponsible for uh, for this shining beacon for freedom and prosperity to uh, to abandon its its duties to uh, guide the rest of the world to reason and happiness. Um, why that dichotomy is so deeply entrenched, I mean, I think is 
it's part of Keynes's biography as someone comfortable with the British elite. Uh, he grows up comfortably middle class, uh, goes to, to Eton and Cambridge, so elite boarding school, elite, uh, elite university. And he's just deeply embedded in the elite worldview of the time, which says we're the British and we're the best. And, and not only do we, do we spread uh, wealth and prosperity, we spread freedom and democracy. Um, so I, I think there, there are gradations of imperialism and it was called this liberal imperialism um, within Britain at the time. I, I think I'd put Keynes on the, he's certainly a liberal imperialist, um, but you can also see him, he's willing to criticize Britain when he thinks that Britain uh, does something wrong. So there's a, a series of disputes in Latin America when he is in college where he's talk, he says, you know, it's really disgraceful to watch the British government go in with gunboats and you know, take ports hostage because certain countries are are no longer interested in in paying interest on British bonds. Um, he says that's bad. That's not that's not the sort of thing we should be doing. Um, but he doesn't. But that kind of behavior doesn't cause him to lose faith in the in his ideal of of Britain as uh, a beacon for for freedom and democracy. And I think that that call it patriotism or naivete or it's, it's both um, is a big part of why he maintains the role that he maintains in public affairs and doesn't become somebody like Lytton Strachey or Virginia Woolf, who is, who is more of an artist. His Keynes was in fact a really beautiful writer when he wanted to be and could have made a career as just a scholar or a biographer. Um, but he stays involved in public affairs, I think, because he he wants the British Empire to live up to these ideals that he has for it. Um, and that's why I think ultimately he's able to be so effective um, in World War II and in the run up to Bretton Woods, although at Bretton Woods, which we can talk about more in depth later as well. Um, you know, he gets outfoxed by the Americans in the direct negotiations, but the whole setting of the stage for the post-World War II order, um, a lot of that really is derived from from. Keynes trying to negotiate the tension that you that you've described there between the reality of empire and the ideal that he would like for it to to represent. Well, let's take a really short break, uh, and when we come back, um, I was going to ask a, a question related to uh, a different reparation topic related to reparations. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the reparations imposed on Germany, but uh, when we get back, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about whether you think that Keynes has anything useful to teach us in thinking about what a resolution of similar issues in the Russia-Ukraine context would look like. But, but let's take a short break first. So, Zach, the tendency, it seems to me, is that Keynes's name gets invoked all the time in connection with all kinds of random stuff. Uh, basically, if it has to do with debt, somebody's going to invoke Keynes. And so in that tradition, I'm doing it now, hoping really that we can get you to just talk a little bit about the Russia-Ukraine uh, war and whether you think Keynes has anything meaningful to, to teach us about what debt issues and reparations issues are likely to, to come out of that. It seems to me that 
Obviously, there's a huge amount of uncertainty about what uh, the world will look like when there is a negotiated peace, but it's not unreasonable, I don't think, to, to assume we'll have one country in need of massive amounts of of investment to rehabilitate its economy and its infrastructure. And uh, another country that maybe presents a different kind of debt problem, uh, but that is is certainly going to be the target of a lot of demands for reparations. Is it appropriate to to kind of think about Keynesian ideas in one one or both of these contexts? So what what uh, what do you think about them after having done all of this work? Yeah, absolutely, I think it's appropriate. Um, but I would emphasize that there are two different. Keynes's you can talk to here about reparations. You can talk to the Keynes at the end of World War I, and you can talk to Keynes at the end of World War II. And there are different views about what to be done at the ends of those wars based on, first, Keynes's differing understandings of the two wars. They're different wars, and he, he has different beliefs about their causes and how they can be resolved. And he also has a different economic theory by the time we get to World War II. Um, so by the time we get to World War II, in particular, the concerns of just absolute resource scarcity uh, for the world are not nearly as severe as they were after World War I, even though World War II is enormously damaging to the global economy and particularly to the European economy. Um, Keynes in 1928 gives a, a talk called uh, Economic possibilities for our grandchildren, where he says, in a couple generations, the economic problem of, of humanity will be solved. And by that, he means scarcity as such is not going to be the problem. How to wisely manage our, our systems and how to peacefully coexist are going to be the dominant problems. It, it, it's just not going to be the case that we're, we're stuck in sort of the Malthusian um, population trap that he believes that we've been stuck in for the previous you know, however many millennia human beings have been around. So he believes the world is both more productive and more fruitful at the end of World War II, but he also believes that uh, Germany is a different kind of, uh, of power at the end of World War II than it was at the end of World War I. He thinks at the end of World War I that this whole thing is largely a collective screw-up, that Germany is not uniquely evil. Uh, at the end of World War II, he believes that Germany is a brigand power and an enemy of humanity, <laughs> Those are his words. Uh, and I think that's pretty reasonable uh, characterization of Germany's behavior during World War II. So he thinks that politically you have to essentially dismantle Germany. Uh, you're, not, you're not going to get to world peace after World War II by uh, just doing free trade with Germany, for instance. Whereas he thinks after World War I, that if we get these debts off the books and can get back to the global trading order that existed from like 1870 to 1913, um, then this is a good formula for, uh, for maximizing efficiency and prosperity. And, uh, and that will enable countries to, uh, to coexist peacefully because they won't be at each other's throats over resources. I think you can look at the war in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, I don't think looks a whole lot like Germany's, uh, like um, Keynes's understanding of Germany after World War I. Um, what Vladimir Putin has said explicitly about his reasons for invading 
are the types of reasons that would have appalled Keynes in 1919. Um, just the, the open appeal to the glory of the czars and uh, some ancient political right to territory in Ukraine and the overt Russian nationalism is the type of stuff that would have um, raised Keynes's hackles throughout his life, at least anywhere in Europe. And Keynes's call to go easy on um, on Germany after uh, after World War One is also predicated on the fact that regime change has, has actually taken place. So in 1919, Kaiser Wilhelm is not around anymore, um, and in, you know we have a, a new, much more democratic regime in Germany in the Weimar Republic. Uh, it's reasonable, Keynes believes, to look at them as potentially um, valuable partners and and uh, in a a, an international project. Um, I think whatever decisions are made about reparations or, or or the economic situation in Russia will have to depend on the political situation in Russia after the war. I don't think there's any question that Ukraine is going to need an enormous amount of reconstruction aid. Um, and for that, you can just look to the types of commitments that were made by the United States after World War II, where Keynes was extremely supportive of creating the uh, an instrumental in creating the World Bank, which at the time was thought of thought to be uh, an engine of of basically a, a way to get U.S. investment in Europe without the United States openly saying we're going to spend a lot of money rebuilding Europe because uh, Keynes and Roosevelt believed that that would be politically difficult to sell to the American people. Um, ultimately, what what happened was that the United States pursued the Marshall Plan which did all of that investment. And the World Bank started uh, worrying about investments in other parts of the world. It was a big loan to France, but for the most part, um, the reconstruction project comes through the, the Marshall Plan. But um, Keynes didn't believe either after World War I or World War II that Europe could reconstruct itself on its own. It would need American help because the United States was the only country to emerge from both wars richer and more prosperous than it had been when it went in. Um, both in terms of resources and in terms of technological capability. Uh, the United States just became an industrial powerhouse as a result of these two worlds, these two wars, and also a financial powerhouse. Um, and it still is, even though the United States has had a rough go the last 25 years or so. Um, I think the idea that the United States is, is one of the few plausible sources of, of aid to Ukraine uh, is, is true. I mean, um, unfortunately, Europe... Western Europe in particular has has become, I think, less interested in making large financial payments to other countries uh, out of the goodness of its heart. Uh, you can see the, the euro crisis after the, the financial crisis of 2008. There's just so much squabbling between countries and so much, I think, frankly, just outright chauvinism. Um, you can see in the debates in German politics from the era, I, I mean, uh, the idea that Germany is being taken advantage of by these countries who've taken out large loans in order to buy German trade, German manufactured goods is just rampant across Germany. Um, and so I think the idea that that Europe needs to defend uh, Ukraine and support it is is widely held uh, in Europe. But I think the actual idea that Europe is going to make lots of large commitments to Ukraine to help rebuild it after the war is probably very unlikely. Um, and the United States, I think, has a responsibility uh, 
to not only make those investments itself, but also to help marshal support for those investments in, in from, from Europe, wherever it's possible. But what you do with Russia is a, is a political problem. Um, and it, it just depends on, on who is in power at the end of the war and what you can reasonably expect from the people who are in power after the war. Um, the type of sanctions that we have on Russia right now, I think the Biden administration pursued these sanctions um, because it believed they would serve a sort of, first and foremost, they believed it would serve a sort of deterrent or punitive uh, function that, that Putin didn't expect this level of economic punishment. And so he would be surprised and change his strategy. Um, that did not happen. Um, but that doesn't mean the sanctions were a bad idea. But it is very implausible to me that you find good reasons to lift these sanctions um, absent some sort of deep and reliable political commitment for Russia not to behave in the way that it has. And so until that type of commitment exists, you can either tread water and hope for the best, or you can essentially rearrange the global commodities production and distribution regime. Um, right now, you know, we've seen a lot of inflation in particularly in Europe, but also in the United States due to the commodity shock aspect of the war, all these, these Russian commodities in particular coming offline, but also a lot of, a lot of stuff that Ukraine produced being, uh, being unavailable now. Um, and if that's going to be a long-term uh, phenomenon, then, then Europe and the United States and anybody who uh, is opposed to what Russia is doing in Ukraine uh, have got to be a little bit more serious, I think, about how they're going to rationally produce and distribute commodities. There's just a lot of stuff that Russia makes that the world uses. It can be obtained from other sources, but there hasn't been a coordinated effort to try to do very much about that. And if you look at the way Keynes managed British war finance in World War One and World War Two, it's it's finance and that he's talking about, he's constantly trying to figure out how to pay for things, but it's also just direct resource purchases. Uh, you know, he has all these headaches in World War One where uh, he wants to buy a lot of grain, but he can't because the Italians just made a big purchase from somewhere and it drove up the global price for a few weeks. And so now they have to wait and it's a headache. And they're, they're doing all of these things that, you know, uh, communist countries did in the, in the later 20th century uh, because the British government was basically running a command and control economy during uh, during the war. I, you know, I, I don't think you have to think of the ally, the, the, the Ukrainian allies as being running <laughs> command and control economies, but the trading system, I think, has to has to change. And there has to be a more concerted and politically directed effort to uh, to make better use of commodities for as long as this war is going to go on. And it certainly looks like with the diplomatic strategy that the Biden administration is pursuing, um, which I, I generally support, I think it's about the best you can do with a bad situation, um, is one in which this conflict drags on for quite some time. Um, if not, <laughs> if we get a, a peace talks sooner than I currently expect, um, then you know having then lifting the sanctions can become part and can become part of of, of a peace deal. Um, but but until you're comfortable politically with that, it's it's hard to make strong judgments or even optimistic judgments about um, what can be done to restore, say, growth in in Russia. I mean, Russia right now basically cannot import things, and uh, over the long run, that is just going to be devastating for uh, the standard of living in Russia. And uh, the longer the war goes, the worse it's going to get.
So Zach, let me pick up on uh, something you said right at the end, which seemed to assume, like I think most people do, and the Biden administration uh, does, that the negotiations or imposition of a bill on Russia will happen after the conflict is over. But unlike in pretty much any major conflict that I know of, and maybe this is my um, a gap in my historical knowledge, uh, here we have an enormous stock of Russian assets that are available for reparations now. And so there are a couple of options, and they've been discussed, we know from press uh, accounts between the White House and Treasury with some conflict. And one option is to take whatever we have of Russian assets and give them to those who have been harmed directly by the Russian actions in Ukraine. So refugees, uh, Ukrainian reconstruction, the families of uh, dead journalists. uh, I mean, they're, they're just, there's a large set of people that these assets won't be enough to satisfy already. And so we could just take them and give them now, or we could wait till the conflict is over, till Putin has taken, I don't know, 30% of Ukraine, and then we could negotiate for peace with him. And the title of your book is, you know, I realize it's a play on Keynes, but it's so beautiful, the, The Price of Peace, because if we wait to negotiate with him to buy peace, he's going to say, lift the sanctions on my assets first, and then I'll install some puppet governments and uh, I promise not to invade until I feel like the next time. And I, I, I brought this up in a class I was teaching recently at the European University on sovereign debt and I said, this, this is not creating the right incentives if we wait until the conflict is over, because then we'll just give away everything, in part because Western politicians, just think of Biden and the November elections, are so desperate for peace and for commodity prices to go down. But that does not create the right incentives. And one of my German economist students raised his hand and said, but what about Keynes? And Keynes w- would think that your pursuit of damages against the Russians uh, is going to result just in more warfare. And I thought, I- I've got to ask Zach this question. Yeah, it's, it's a really tricky question. And you can, look at, um, you can look at Keynes, the activities in, in Paris, there are actually several rounds of economic negotiations that happen before they get to the reparations talks at Paris. So reparations are always this sort of um, elephant in the room in every discussion, but there are several moments like when they're going to lift the allied block, the the food blockade, for instance, Um, what is Germany willing to give up to have the blockade lifted is a different question from what, what is Germany going to have to pay for its, you know, its, its culpability in, in starting the war. 
and so Keynes is in fact involved very early on in these pretty cutthroat negotiations, um, forcing Germany to give over most of its uh, of its mercantile fleet uh, in exchange for having the food blockade lifted. And that food blockade, it's you know, it's there are reasonable disputes over how many people starved as a result of that. I mean, there is a there is a plausible estimate that it's as low as zero. Um, and there is a plausible estimate that it's as high as 400,000. Um, so something, you know, clearly there was a reason why they kept it in place. I, I do think it was effective in the sense that it killed people. Um, and there is a reason why Germany was willing to give up its mercantile fleet in order to uh, in order to have it lifted. But um, but you saw a series of of attempts to strip Germany of assets before uh, before we even got before before Keynes even got to the uh, the reparations question, and uh, I think Keynes's view about that in Germany was that that was reprehensible, but it was reprehensible because of his understanding of the war. Um, he would not have made the same statements about World War II, uh, and I think in in the Russian situation, uh, payments, you have to think about the moral function that these payments are going to serve. Um, if the United States government wants to improve the quality of life for people who have been wronged by Vladimir Putin, it can do that with its own resources. It doesn't need Putin's resources to do that. The reason you want to take Putin's resources is to, to, to help people who, who he has harmed is because you want to punish Putin and make him, there's something morally compelling about making bad actors compensate the people they have harmed. Um, and that is one set of, uh, of considerations to take into account in ending a conflict with a nuclear power. Um, if we, if we want to seize those assets and give them away right now, I, I don't have a I don't have a principled objection to that. Um, but I I also am of the belief that by the time we get to the end of this war, Russia is going to be re I mean, if it, this goes on for you know a long period of time, the Russian economy is really going to be devastated by it. We don't see the evidence of that in the United States every day, but Russian imports just keep falling and falling and falling. And we're going to have a different, uh, the, 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 the set of moral um, issues that have to be taken into the calculus are going to be different in six months or in six years than they are today. Um, so I, I think you're right in that if you, once you settle with if, if we're if we're looking for some sort of settlement with with Russia, whether it's in six weeks or six years, um, that settlement will involve in some way. We are no longer going to economically punish Russia, and Russia is going to get something out of the deal, probably. Right? Um, there's going to be some amount of territory in, in Ukraine eventually that is ceded to Russia to make this problem go away. Um, I don't have any strong, firm commitments about what that is, but. That is that is just yeah, that inherently that is a situation where Putin gets something that he wants, right? He would still be coming away from the invasion with with more territory. Uh, and if we're not talking about regime change, which everybody in Western Europe and the United States is very careful not to talk about because he is a nuclear armed power, um, then 
your your options for how to deal with with that person once they've decided to be belligerent are are not good. <laughs> there just aren't terrific options on the table. Um, I don't feel like I have a comprehensive view of what the moral considerations will be um, over the, the the whatever the complete period of of the conflict is. Right now, the United States's view is that Ukraine gets to decide when it's done fighting. Um, and I think that's a reasonable perspective too. But um, until Ukraine has decided to, uh, uh, until until Ukraine has decided that the war needs to end and it's time for a settlement, um, it's hard it's hard to weigh the different the different moral factors. Um, I, I don't see how um, just stripping Russia of some assets right right now is that that. It just doesn't strike me as nearly as large of consideration economically or morally as the as the import blockade. Um, that is just an order of magnitude larger um, in in what the long term repercussions will be. I mean, if if these sanctions, for instance, stay on against Russia indefinitely, or if the world trade system uh, fundamentally changes so that most of the world is no longer interested in buying commodities from Russia permanently. It will fundamentally change the Russian economy in ways that are not good for the Russian people, uh, and that is that is a form of economic punishment that is different from uh, you know seizing assets or uh, or creating debts, but it will it will nonetheless be a a it could function as a deterrent. You could say you could argue. Zach, I have I've really liked this discussion. I know we've also taken. Uh, a ton of your time. And I, I wanted to shift gears a little bit, uh, just so that we can uh, talk about a slightly different question before we let you go. And I, you had mentioned uh, earlier, um, the sort of standard narrative uh, about the creation of the Bretton Woods institutions, which, to put it in, in kind of a blunt nutshell, is Harry Dexter White, eats Keynes's lunch. Um, <laughs> but then in some really important ways, those institutions are also the product of Keynes's work and Keynes's ideas. And so I'm wondering whether you can, kind of, as we close, give us a sense of the extent to which Keynes really did shape the creation and the evolution of the IMF in particular. Sure, the you're absolutely right that uh, once everybody shows up in New Hampshire in 1944, Keynes just loses and loses and loses to uh, to the Americans, with a few exceptions. And uh, and he has a rough go of it. I mean, he physically collapses at one point. Uh, there are some German newspapers who are reporting that he died. Um, it 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 was it was not a pleasant experience for him. Um, but the fact that the conference happened at all is really, I think, evidence of the triumph of his entire macroeconomic framework and particularly um, view, not, not just his macroeconomic framework, it's also the triumph of his, his the ideas that he um, put forth after World War I. The United States does not want to make the same mistakes that it made after World War I. And one of the reasons why they're holding a conference and inviting Keynes is because they want the guy who denounced <laughs> the first the, the, the treaty after World War One to be on board with uh, with what they do after World War Two, 
um, not just for PR purposes, but they actually also actually want to hear from him and and know what he thinks about these different institutions. Um, and I think you can get a, a sense for how influential Keynes is on this entire project by looking at um, the policy views of Cordell Hall, who's the U.S. Um, Secretary of State at, at the time. Uh, Cordell Hall is an absolutely militant free trader. Um, he believes that free trade is going to save, is going to fix everything. Um, he thinks that the the Great Depression is caused by uh, the abandonment of the late 19th century commitment to free trade. He believes that free trade brings peoples together, creates peace and harmony, uh, and also creates magical amounts of economic growth. He's so deeply committed to free trade that Keynes, someone who has spent his most of his life being someone who's very enthusiastic about free trade, uh, calls him a lunatic. So free trade after World War II would not require multiple institutions to manage uh, the, the post-war global economic order. You would not need the IMF. You would not need the World Bank. Uh, you would just allow countries to trade without tariffs. And the efficiency and growth created by this trade would make everybody happy and peaceful. Um, that is the dominant view, not only the State Department, but throughout um, the Roosevelt administration until pretty deep into the conflict. And Keynes is going around and you know, he's, he's visit, visits Washington a few times during the war to negotiate the terms of the Lend-Lease deals uh, between the U.S. and Britain. Most of what he does in World War II is manage the British relationship with, with FDR and, uh, and the Americans. So the very fact that they're having this conference and the fact that they believe that some, some way of managing global capital flows uh, and of ensuring that people make good on their commitments um, suggests to me that, that people have been have been paying attention to Keynes. Uh, you know, his actual idea is is not for the precise institutions that that come into into being. He wants something a little bit more independent, with the power, in particular, to discipline the United States, and also, in particular, to force the United States um, to <laughs> give up more of its wealth to other countries. For I think that's the, the simplest way to put it. Um, and he comes to believe that the IMF and uh, and the World Bank are are basically the best uh, the best he can he can get. And having very large uh, fiscal commitments from the U.S. to support those institutions is a way of getting American money um, back into the game of uh, international peace and reconstruction. And uh, I think he was basically right about that. The IMF, as it emerges in 1944, 1945 is not the same institution that in the 1990s is pushing hard for austerity and just uh, obliterating countries whenever they get into uh, balance of payments crises. Um, and frankly, the IMF today is, is not the IMF that it was in the 1990s anymore. It appears to have learned, but that th those institutions have transformed multiple times. Um, but I think, I think the, the, the basic sort of Keynesian um, ideal is, is reflected in uh, in in what comes out of Bretton Woods, even though on almost every specific negotiating point, uh, it, it's it's like Keynes comes up with a blueprint and Harry White just pairs it back. But you're still working with with Keynes's blueprints in some ways. That does that makes sense. 
Yeah. Th- thank you so much, Zach. I mean, it, it's, I, I couldn't help but think uh, at, at a meeting I was recently, uh, Mark and I were both there and we were hearing somebody from the IMF, a, a good friend of us, ours, talk about the value of debt reduction for certain countries, particularly countries that needed to invest more in uh, climate, uh, that that value would translate into higher growth uh, if we could enable them to reduce the debt. And it, this person was not uh, a identified Keynesian at all, uh, trained in the classical tradition, but it, after reading your book, it, it sounded the, like the kind of thing Keynes would uh, approve of. And, you know, most of my students, they have no clue who Harry Dexter White was, uh, uh, but they do, they do know about, about Keynes. And so I, I do wonder in the arc of history that uh, Keynes, Keynes is living with us now, at least the good parts of Keynes, and there were a lot of good parts. So thank you so much. We have so many more questions for you, but we have taken up far too much of your time, but we hope we'll see you on the podcast again. Yes, please. It's been wonderful talking to you.